Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Trevor Connor, filling in for Chris Case, who's at Cyclocross Worlds right now. If you're a listener of this show, you understand that nothing can replace hard work if you want to be at your strongest. But that doesn't stop many of us from keeping an eye on the newest gadgets and tools with the hopes that one or two of them will give us that little bit more, that slight edge that pushes us over the top. What might surprise you is that is something that we share with even the highest level professionals. And while many of us imagine a battery of physiologists and coaches precisely tuning their every decision, that's often not the case. Many pros get their information from the same places as us, and just like us, They're often found stopped on the side of the road struggling with their newest gadget. That has certainly been the case with today's guest, a Jersey leader at the Tour de France. Tom Skoinch is a Latvian rider on the world tour team Trek Segafredo. He has worn the polka dot jersey at the Tour de France and won multiple national championships and one-day races. Today, Tom talks with us about the many tools he's experimented with over the years, including continuous glucose monitors, ketone strips, the core body temperature monitor, aura rings, the Leomo accelerometer, and even conducting lactate tests on himself. Some have given him that extra edge, while others have left him bleeding on the side of the road, literally. So let's dive into a few of these training aids, and let's make you fast. Listeners, we are excited to announce our ninth pathway, which is focused on indoor cycling. Members of Fast Talk Labs can explore the best ways to get the most out of riding inside. Our new indoor cycling pathway taps experts like Coach Joe Friel, Dr. Stephen Chung, and Dr. Andy Pruitt to explore how indoor and outdoor riding are different, how to adjust your training indoors, and how to avoid biomechanical problems that affect many indoor cyclists. We draw from sports scientist Rob Pickles for ways to make Zwift an effective way to train. Indoor cycling is not the same as riding outside. Follow our indoor cycling pathway to get more from indoor. See more at FastDocLabs.com. It has been a really long time since we've had Tom's on the show. Welcome back to Fast Talk, Tom's. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me yet again. So I'm going to start by saying, obviously, I am a data guy. Chris is not, but mm-hmm. I love data. Rob, never figured out where you are. Oh, man, I love toys and tools. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but we created an outline for this show and I put in a little comment in the outline of, of Tom's fill in some of the stuff that you've been experimenting with. And you've written out this list that uh, I've admit to, I'm going to be doing this whole podcast picturing is like the cyborg with all these various devices connected to it. Cause it's a long list of stuff that you've tried and used. And I also know that, was it a month ago, you contacted us about borrowing our lactate monitor and, and some test strips. And I think we asked you, uh, so who's testing you? And you're like, no, I'm testing myself, which I have to give full credit to. I'm not sure I could take lactates while I was doing a test on a bike on myself. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, that's one of the things I've actually recently started doing. And all that list that you saw, obviously, I don't have it on me 24-7 since <laughs> uh, I started. That's too bad. That would be that would be quite entertaining if I used all the tools all the time. But yeah, the lactate testing is always, like you say, it is uh, sometimes challenging to do on your own. And there are definitely a few good stories that come out of it. But I got to say that for one... My coach is always very impressed with uh, the accuracy of the data I get, which is uh, always really good. My coach is Sebastian Weber, who you guys have had had on the podcast before. He's the guy behind uh, Inside. 
And yeah, so we do we do lactate testing here and there. Obviously, I really decided, let's say three years ago, that I've been doing enough mileage. Every year I do more than 30,000 kilometers. And I thought maybe it's time to switch to smarter training instead <laughs> of more training. And I figured that lactate was something that, um, especially with working with Sebastian, that we really actually were not using enough because also was, I mean, it's right now with inside, especially it's so easy to do with all the portable lactate meters. You don't really need a lab. So I was like, let's try, let's do it. And uh, yeah, there's been a few times where usually, I mean, taking the lactate when you're, you've done a steady effort is definitely way easier than uh, when you've done an all out effort. <laughs> So uh, usually my tactic for the all-out ones is that after I finish three, four minutes all-out, which is usually the, the hardest one to do and measure, is that I sit down on the ground. And occasionally it's uh, in a turn because there's just like a like little extra space on the ground. <laughs> and you can avoid getting run over by a car that might be coming around. Yeah, that, 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 that helps for sure. <laughs> But I've had in Girona, yeah, Cassini Dome rolling down the hill while I'm sitting on the ground in a turn, like breathing heavily, just like trying to measure my lactate. Look at me like I'm some sort of clown or I don't know what she was thinking, actually, that maybe a crash or whatever. And I'm trying to say, yeah, hello, hi, I'm all okay. It's all good. I'm just measuring my lactate. I just need to take some of my blood. Yeah, Ignore me yeah. line here on yeah, the ground, yeah, breathing yeah. really hard. <laughs> or another time when I was doing it here in Andorra, I had, yeah, pricked my finger, but the blood was not like coming out. So, I mean, obviously you're trying to squeeze and then suddenly it just like Burst. the stream of blood that came out of my hand or finger just went all across my face, all <laughs> down my glasses and all down my, down my body. So I had like this big strip of blood just, yeah, on me which was also very entertaining. Luckily that day I didn't uh, see anyone nor did anyone really see me. So, because that could have been even scarier probably to see. At moments like these, has the thought ever gone through your head that maybe there is something wrong with the sport we have all chosen to do here? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, <laughs> there's definitely some things that you think it would be very hard to explain to your family or uh, someone outside the sport that uh yeah so what i do is i go as hard as i can then i try and use this little needle to prick my finger <laughs> so that blood comes out lying on the side of the road yeah well lying on the side of the road because going as hard as you can doesn't hurt enough yeah yeah there's definitely if you take a zoom out of it then it's quite entertaining to explain to someone i want to take a slight step backwards actually you are a professional athlete arguably on one of the best world tour teams out there. And yet you're doing this to yourself on the side of the road. Does it seem a little weird to you that you are sometimes probably experimenting with stuff? You have a world-class coach that is, I'm sure, advising you at times, but at other times it seems like you must be just flying by the seat of your pants, as they say a little bit, and seeing what works. That to me strikes me as pretty weird that a professional would be doing that would you agree with that uh yeah i mean definitely <laughs> when you think pro you don't think uh, laying on the side of the road trying to get blood out of yourself but cycling is uh is definitely not like other sports i'd say especially if you look at any team sports where there's always a team base you're always there the coaches are always just 
next door or whatever. Cycling is very international and people live all around the world. So, of course, there's labs pretty much everywhere nowadays, like some kind of sports labs. But uh, if you want to keep it consistent, if you want to keep the same protocol, it's not that always you can try and convince a lab to do the same protocol. Plus, riding on the road and testing on the road is definitely way, way better than doing it on a trainer with a mask and uh, hoping that the temperature is right, the humidity is right and all that. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, that also affects really how you cool, how you will perform and what the test results will be. So I always re- really, once I realized that testing on the road is available, even, I mean, you can go back and look at uh, just like, the same old uh, 20 minute all out test, right? That people use. There's a reason that it worked and that there's a reason why people start using that instead of labs. It's just because it's uh, a lot of times more realistic, uh, easier to do. And uh, yeah, just gives you sometimes even more accurate, more usable data than uh, somewhere in a lab in some random town in the world. <laughs> right. All fair and fully agree, but you you brought up a point that raises one of the questions I really want to ask because I hear a lot from the masters, the amateur athletes that I coach. They'll give me that comment of, well, I'm not a pro. I don't have the access to the tools and testing and everything they have access to. And there is this image that pros have everything they need and and these great labs and, and all the resources. And my question to you is, and obviously you just told us a story that changes the image a little bit. Is that the case? Do pros really have access to all of these tools and, and all the resources that, that they need? I mean, there's definitely always options to get to those tools and get to those resources, but it is time and money because not always they are provided. And if you have to fly every single time to the same lab, because you started there and you want to keep the same protocol or have the same physio look at you every single time or whatever, it gets complicated. And it is also a question of money as well and the funds and where you put your resources. Because, I mean, not everyone is making the salary of Peter Sagan, you know, because then you can just hire someone that is always there with you and always does your testing for you. But yeah, that all costs money, of course. Another question that takes us a little bit backwards and could have been asked right at the very beginning. Obviously, you have tried a lot of these tools. You are willing to do some of this stuff to yourself because you see the the value in it. How important, though, are they in the grand scheme of training? Could you do your job, do you think, at this point, at this level, in this modern age, without these tools? I mean, there's definitely tools like we talked there's definitely tools toys that make more sense than others if for one ride you forget your heart rate monitor it's probably not a problem at the same time power meters that are now so widespread and 10 years ago they were not then sure you can be pro without a power meter but you will most definitely not be reaching your maximum you will definitely be leaving something on the table And yeah, it is a lot about finding the balance in what data you look at, what data you don't look at, where do you invest the money and what actually is important. And also like, obviously I don't test myself on a lactate meter every day or look at my power meter 24 seven, there is time and place for it. Yeah. It's also about timing and also knowing when to use 
which tools, let's say. Yeah, Tom, did you bring up that point? And if we look at your list here, you know, to outline for the listeners, you have a, a continuous glucose monitor, you have power meter, you have core temperature, you have Leomo accelerators, you have recovery tools, power breath, ketone pee strips, and self-finger pricking is sort of the outline that you provided of, of this stuff that you're commonly using. How do you integrate this data? How do you know what to listen to when? Do you ever choose to ignore something and favor something else? How does that work in your mind? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I go through phases and uh, I think it's actually probably good to go through like cycles, even with, let's say, all these new fit bands of uh, aura rings and uh, recovery tools and everything. It's If you look at every single day, every single race day, then it probably gets in your head and you might see, oh, I have a low score, but that low score might be from just wrong measurements. And then it gets in your head and you're like, oh, I'm not going to perform today. And then you have to remember that sport is such a mental game as well that you can't look to the data too closely. You always have to take a grain of salt with it, so to say. So for example, with the CGM, use it only in like specific cycles when I'm really playing around with some nutrition. I don't use it every day. It was actually interesting to put it on during the off season where I was not paying attention to my diet and not exercising and seeing how that impacts uh, the glucose levels. So I just always try to find, let's say, interesting points in training in the year, in the cycle of training, where to yeah, play around with, uh, with the tools I have, the tools I have accumulated over the years. So I really want to dive into this list of the, the tools and things that you've tried here because I am a geek. I try everything and there's a few things in this list. I'm like, I didn't even know that existed. So this is going to be a lot of fun. But before we dive into these, I do want to ask that question of, you know, you are a pro, you are a top level pro. You have worn one of the leader's jerseys at the Tour de France. You don't get much higher than that. So I get with somebody like you, you're looking for those marginal gains. You're looking for those little things that can just give you that little bit more. But a lot of our listeners are not pros. What's your overall feeling of, are these tools beneficial for them as well? Or are they not in such a need of these little marginal improvements? The best answer for this is that the tools you need are the ones that you're going to use. If you buy a lactate meter, and you're like, oh yeah, now I can do the lactate testing and it's really going to help me train better. But if you don't use it, <laughs> it's not, it's worth nothing. But if you even buy a foam roller and you make sure you use it, you make sure you use it not just for foam rolling post rides, but stretching and even just a reminder to take recovery seriously, that will help you. And a foam roller is way cheaper than a power meter or whatever else, you know? Sure. Trevor, if I can talk about this from the other side, right? I'm, I'm about as opposite of a, of a rider uh, as Tom's here. <laughs> You've I'm, never worn a jersey? I've, 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 <laughs> I've, I ride in tank tops more than jerseys oftentimes. <laughs> you know, and, and obviously a, a 2% gain, it's, it's not going to do anything for me, right? I'm, I'm going to go from being a, a mile behind to slightly under a mile behind. But I think the opposite side is sometimes this is just interesting, right? It's just fun to learn about things and, and to be inquisitive. And, you know, the, the 2% gain isn't, isn't necessarily the goal, I think, for all athletes. 
Yeah, I I can say the same thing, even though I have a power meter on my bike, but the battery died six years ago, you know? I don't use any of this stuff, but I can still see how it's intriguing to people to understand a bit more. It can be about improvement, but it's also just sometimes about understanding how the body works, progress takes place. Why are you grinning at me like that, Trevor? <laughs> <You're> just, <laughs> you can't believe the words that are coming out of my mouth, right? <laughs> Actually, I'm completely caught on, on on what Rob said. Of maybe this is just fun, and I'm just having this image of one of our listeners on the side of the road with their <laughs> finger bleeding, <laughs> thinking, "Well, this is fun." <laughs> my response to that is maybe cycling isn't your biggest problem right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, Trevor, I think you need to get up to speed because uh, I've used everything on this list aside from that glucose monitor, and uh, that's really just because they're pretty hard to get in the U.S. right now. I have not done ketone pee strips, I got to admit. I'm excited to talk about those. <laughs> Do you want to start there, Trevor? It is, interestingly, it's highlighted in yellow on our document as well, which is... The color of pee. Yes, yes. Thank you, <laughs> Tom. <nice. laughs> well, Tom's, why don't we let you pick? Let's dive into some of these tools. Where would you like to start? Well, I mean, we can start with your peace trips if you if you'd like. I mean, that was something I got. I haven't used it much, but obviously, with the low carb training things and even ketones coming out in like liquid form and people trying to use them in races and so on, that was really something that uh, actually I experimented quite a bit with, like low carb rides and trying to help my efficiency. The very first year I was on uh, Cannondale my first ever world tour year. And I got to say that that year at home, I really didn't do more than five hour rides, but sometimes I would do the five hour rides without an intake of any carbs. So by the time Flanders rolled around, even at hour six plus, I was feeling super good. So, I mean, P-strips were just a nice indicator. Obviously it is still uh, not the most accurate way to measure them, but they're cheap and they're easy to use, that uh, you don't have to prick your finger every time you want to take a little blood sample. I did use during the rides to see where I am more or less, even if I am in ketosis or not. And uh, yeah, I think uh, that really helped improve my endurance that year. One thing I will comment on that is there are a lot of people who try to get into a ketogenic state. Either they believe that it helps performance or quite often there's a belief that it helps with health. And we've talked about that in other episodes, so I'm not going to dive into that. But what I will say is it's actually a lot harder to get into a ketogenic state than people think, particularly if it's something that you do frequently because your body adjusts a bit. So, yeah, I can see the value of having these peace trips. You might go, well, I've, I've reduced my carb intake. I think I'm in a ketogenic state, but you just think you are. And this is something that, that can easily tell you, yes, you've actually obtained ketosis here. Because if there are benefits to this, you have to be in ketosis to get that benefit. So it's good to know that, yes, you know, all that work you've been doing is actually getting you to where you need to be. The only thing I have to, do have to mention is I just realized that there are things that people don't think about when you, I mean, sometimes I would take the peace trips on rides and obviously you pull on the side of the road and that happens uh, to take a little nature break and that happens more often than not. It doesn't happen like it happens on a long ride for sure, at least once. But then the problem is where do you put the strip? Like you don't want to put it on the side of the road, right? So do you put it back in your pocket or... <laughs> 
good. But anyway, well, I'll let people that do get them figure themselves. How do they want to approach that that thing? So we now have you on the side of the road. Your finger is gushing blood. <laughs> You're peeing on a strip and trying to figure out where. Car, drivers give you a wide berth, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> don't mix the two of those up. This, yeah. this, I am the sole reason drivers hate cyclists. <laughs> <laughs> so where should we go next? This is a big list. I mean, we can go on to, just because I just now, I was telling you guys that I uh, set up my aura ring. We, even though it's not on the list, I feel like, yeah, recovery tools include things like the aura ring that helps you track your sleep. Same with whoop. I had the feeling that I actually tried the whoop for a long time, but once I saw that the aura ring has, um, it gives you also an indication of the temperature. And um, that really, I have heard from other riders that it is a really good indicator to see when you are getting sick. And especially now that mm-hmm. we're talking about people getting vaccinated and uh, you can see that your temperature is a little bit elevated the next day or whatever after getting a shot. Or let's say you do a call ride and come back a bit extra fatigued and whatever. And you have, in theory, planned a big ride, but you see that your temperature is elevated. It's 100% worth calling the day off yeah, and taking it easy. But another reason I feel like these devices are useful especially for amateurs, is when you have a family, when you have kids, that sleep gets um, sometimes put into the backseat and you kind of forget about it and you try and train through it. Actually, the biggest reason why I got the Aura Ring is because we have a baby coming in May and I figured that it will probably be some sleepless nights. So another device that tells me to back off because uh, I am definitely one that has a hard time backing off in training. Something that will help me to decide easier to back off will be most definitely a useful tool so that I am a bit fresher and not not digging myself into a hole. Well, first, a big congratulations. I didn't know that. Thank you. Now, can I ask both of you guys, because you have experience, I have experience with this as well. It sounds as though you're using it really just for sleep tracking and sleep metrics. Uh, Tom's, would you agree with that? Or are you wearing this all the time, even when you're out on the bike and uh, quantifying kind of your daily strain too? When I was using the Whoop, I actually kept it on the whole time. But from what I understand, quite a few riders do take the ring off because, um, yeah, it gives too much of a strain. And like, obviously, we are kind of the outliers in the activity you do during the day so it's uh yeah i think people need to kind of see where they are and experiment it with it a little bit themselves i haven't used the aura ring long enough to decide whether or not i'm going to keep it on every single ride or not but you got to remember that riding is not always the only activity and you might have a rest day but you might be running around town or i don't know doing some housework and then you realize that actually that strain of the day is quite high and that also is something that you need to take into account not just sleep not just hrv but i think it's definitely useful also just in daily activities let's say hey listeners we're pleased to announce the release of our eighth pathway Our newest pathway is focused on exercise in the cold. Just in time for the chill of winter exercise, members of Fast Talk Labs can explore the best ways to train in cold weather and how colder temps affect our performance. The Exercise in the Cold pathway features Dr. Stephen Chung, one of the world's leading environmental physiologists. 
as well as Dr. Inigo San Milan, our Canadian CEO and coach Trevor Connor, and Dr. Andy Pruitt. Winter training isn't as simple as just adding another layer. Follow our exercise in the cold pathway to learn more. So sticking with the, the recovery, you have a list of some other recovery tools that you find beneficial. Which are the ones that you've tried that you keep using and to say, I absolutely have to stick with this. This is, this is a great tool. Actually, one of the things I uh, can't get enough of almost, the Normatec slash high price uh, boots, the inflatable ones, just because the first time I really noticed the difference was when I have double days and I use it between the sessions especially if it's like a hard gym session in the afternoon after like a four hour ride, then the gym session is a really higher quality than it would have been. Same with post-travel. Sometimes even if you don't ride or let's say sometimes our travel to the race is in the afternoon. So you kind of have to ride in the morning to get a ride in before the race. But then if I, once I get there, I get into the boots and, um, yeah, get the blood flow working. Uh, even the massage is sometimes better if you do it pre-massage. That yeah, the next day just the legs don't feel don't have that like post-travel fatigue where you're like feeling sluggish in the beginning. You really are more responsive. And that's something I yeah definitely use the most. But I never shy away from a foam roller. I always carry it with me to the races, even though we have people doing massages and everything. I still feel that sometimes. You find the spots as one year might not. And yeah, you can have some extra time to work on that. Tom's on the massage topic. Uh, have you used any of the percussion massages from Theragun, Hyperice, and, and other brands? I have uh, like three Hyperice <laughs> guns, the Hypervolt. I have the mini one and like two bigger ones. I definitely use them quite a bit. And that's also something that I feel like is for a lot of people easier to use. And I was talking with one of our soigneurs actually about this. And he was like, yeah, if I'm rolling on the floor while we're watching a movie with my wife, she looks at me weird. But with the Hypervolt, like we're both sitting on the couch and it feels less odd. So it's definitely something that um, is worth considering for people as a recovery tool. Yeah, perfect. It's funny. My wife and I, we we each have one, and sometimes we're on the couch, and we're each using it, and and I, it must feel like there's yeah, there's a an earthquake occurring. You know, with uh, anyone else in the house with us is probably getting the same effect that we are uh, based on the vibrations. And this is when your daughter walks in the room and just goes, "You two are so weird." <laughs> I don't want to know what you guys are doing in here. Tom's oftentimes when I'm out riding, my my daily route involves going by what I think is still the Leomo office here in Boulder. Can you tell me about your use of, of their product? Yeah, I actually went to their office uh, 2020 and they were developing some new stuff with their accelerometers or whatever you want to call them. We were doing some squat testing to see the speed of the squat bar, which was which is something I do every once in a while as well. That's not on the list, but now that we're speaking of it, I recall that, yeah, at camp, like just now, we were measuring the speed of the bar, measure the power output. So you put different weight on the bar, do squats at speed as fast as you can, and you measure like what's the velocity of the bar. And Leomo were trying to, I don't know how how well they developed this in the end, but they were trying to have their little devices 
you just put them on the bar and then uh, they would be able to tell you how fast the bar is moving, which is super interesting for not just powerlifting, but um, there is some studies behind, yeah, trying to find the biggest power you can produce because obviously power is forced by time or time by work you've done, I guess. So the heavier you weight, you move faster, the better obviously, but at one point you're moving too heavy a weight and you can't get it fast enough that the power is actually dropping. Like imagine being on too big of a gear and you just can't turn it over. So I implement that into training, but yeah, the first interaction with the OMO really was through, again, Sebastian, where we were trying to more look at pedal efficiency and uh, trying to see also on the TT bike how your body is moving because TT bike is always a little bit more straining on the body. And especially when you go hard, if you put one of the devices on your shoulders, then you see how your body is like maybe starting to tilt out of that aerodynamic position, which is again is a indicator of, okay, maybe the position is a bit too aggressive or whatever, or you're not trained well enough and then you see with time that you can keep in the position even at high power or whatever so with leoma there's quite a few quite a few things you can do yeah sure now for those who aren't familiar with leomo because it's a pretty small brand i think in the cycling space i have a little bit of experience i helped with some research for this company prior to them actually coming to market when they when they were first coming to the u.s and ultimately what this is, is it's a system of accelerometers. I believe they include six or eight accelerometers with the system that all speak to a head unit. And, and the purpose of that is you're able to put these accelerometer devices on various parts of your body. So you can put one on your knee, you can put one on your foot, you can put them on your hips, you can put them on your shoulders, Tom's, as you mentioned. And the head unit records the paths that these are taking. So you can get, say, a very accurate knee tracking movement. Is your knee tracking vertically? Is it moving in a, in a figure eight sort of fashion? You could make adjustments to your bike or to your setup and see if there's improvement. So it does also have bike fitting sort of capabilities, which is the aspect that I was really familiar with back in the beginning. So it's interesting to hear how they're expanding that program and, and going to this, say, uh, measuring power during weightlifting and, and these other applications. Yeah, that was uh, a really good side note. <laughs> I should have explained a little bit more what it is, but yeah, you hit it nail on the head. That's, yeah, in the beginning, they were really used for knee tracking bike position because obviously, again, when you're riding outside, it is different than riding on a static trainer and you can take these things outside and ride around. Yep. Well, I think one of the other items on this long list here, Tom's, are the CGMs, continuous glucose monitors. They seem to be coming very popular. The Super Sapiens is one example, but as Rob mentioned earlier, they're hard to get in the U.S. They're not, is it because of FDA approval at, at this point? So perhaps you could explain not only what you're using it for, Tom's, but Tell us a little bit about how it is used. Do you put a patch on your body? What are the mechanics of it? Yeah, so the, so the mechanics of it are pretty simple. It is kind of like a little patch that you put on your triceps. And um, in theory, it measures continuously your glucose in your muscles or bloodstream. I'm not 100% sure on this. But you have a little phone app that shows you where you are at. And uh, obviously, firstly, it was used, I think, actually by the Novo Nordisk guys, because for them, it's 
very, very crucial to know where they are. Those that you don't know, Novo Nordisk is a 100% uh, type 1 diabetes team, uh, the old team type 1 uh, team that has just changed the name. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, for those guys, obviously, it was really important. But um, yeah, slowly we have seen that there's also benefits for everyone else to see if maybe you're underfueling or uh, suddenly you're sugar crashing and yeah, just uh, being more cautious, conscious about uh, your fueling. And actually the biggest thing I took away from using it or have taken away from using it for now is how different foods affect my blood glucose, but not just let's say different foods, but also the timing of them. And even let's say a breakfast that includes eggs and oatmeal, pending if you have eggs first or oatmeal first, will have a different response. Hmm. Obviously, there's also other indicators, but yeah, you really want to kind of manage your glucose levels to not have that big spike because that means a big crash. So if you can level out during daily life, your glucose and then have like level it out, make it smooth, make it not spike too high because then it won't crash too low. But then during races or training sessions, keep it fairly high. That means that you're feeling well enough and that you're not bonking towards the end of the race, that your efforts are as quality as they could be. That's kind of the experience I've had. And uh, yeah, I experimented with even different drink mixes, different concentration of the drink mixes, different gels, different bars to see what kind of response I get from each. Because obviously there's times when you don't need that glucose spike, especially if you're doing a long endurance ride. It's not necessarily that you drink the most sugary drink that gives you the highest spike. So there's always, yeah, a little bit of experimentation and just the fueling and when to use it, how to use it sort of. So do you eat the eggs first or the oatmeal first? I do eggs first because okay. that uh, that definitely helps. I mean, it's kind of simple once you realize it that you do need to like slow down the spike as long as you have eggs or some something fatty before the fully carbed meal or fully carbed food that it will just slow it down a little bit and you'll not have that big glucose spike. So maybe at Thanksgiving, start with the turkey and then go to the other mashed potatoes. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're speaking my language. For a point of clarification, the sensor that they're using is actually measuring glucose in the interstitial space. So there's a, a very small, a very fine needle, right, that kind of gets inserted relatively painlessly underneath the skin. So this system is probably going to track a little bit behind the blood glucose levels that we're seeing if we go directly from the blood. It just takes a little bit for it to diffuse in and out of the interstitial space there. But definitely interesting, you know, for monitoring relatively real time. I'm finding it really interesting how you're you're seeing these very actionable results that you're getting. The order that you're eating, the specific foods that you're eating are all having these different effects. And for me as a scientist, it's really interesting to see this work out in practice, right? These are all topics that we know, that we talk about, but frankly, we kind of have to assume are working in this manner. But but to get this readout, this graph that, that shows you, that proves the concept is pretty interesting. One of the things I 
find really interesting about these continuous glucose monitors is we are going to start getting some information that we've, we've never had before. And I'm going to give you an example. This is a, a study that I read last night that was published in November of 2021, so still a very recent study, called Continuous Glucose Monitoring to Measure Metabolic Impact and Recovery in Sub-Elite Endurance Athletes. And the gist of it is they put these monitors on 10 endurance athletes, so not top-level pros. This is basically amateur athletes. And the one thing I feel, I'm glad it doesn't hurt because on all 10 athletes, they put three monitors Mm -hmm. at the same time. I think they were testing the different brands. Mm -hmm. But they had these athletes do a, a test to exhaustion. So it was basically a, a lactate test protocol where they increase the wattage 20 watts every 33 minutes until you, you can't keep going anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they monitored them for four days. And what they showed was even though they weren't consuming a ton of, of glucose, that big effort actually produced that same glucose spike. Basically, the body released glucose into the system. And just as interestingly, what you saw for up to four days afterwards was the body's ability to regulate glucose was reduced. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Not unlike what you see in a diabetic, which is surprising because you tend to think exercise improves our ability, and there's plenty of research showing this, that exercise improves our ability to manage glucose. But here's an example when you take a, a when you do a really hard effort like that, like do something to exhaustion, that you're actually seeing the opposite effect. It's actually hampering our ability. Hmm. Well, it doesn't even need to be that deep, Trevor, right? If you put this on somebody and you send them down a roller coaster, you're gonna get a glucose spike. You yeah. know, and I, I would love to put this on my mountain bike and, and see what happens to my glucose as I'm climbing, using up a lot of energy, working really hard. And then turn and go downhill and scare the bejesus out of myself. You know, what, what does that do to your glucose over time? That's a good point. Okay, I think we've covered most of what's on that list. Toms, what else do we need to, what else is here? What else would we like to talk about? Core temperature. There's actually a new company or new to me, Core Body Temp, I think they are. And they have this little device kind of the same size of one of the Leoma accelerometers that you only have to put on your heart rate strap. It just like slides onto it sort of. And uh, it measures your body temperature from, uh, yeah, outside your body. So I actually have it on my heart rate strap pretty much all the time, unless I'm charging it or unless unless I'm washing my heart rate strap so that it records every ride. And uh, the data is there when I decide to look at it and uh, yeah you can also see it real time on the head unit on the wahoo so yeah it was uh, actually i started using it last year and it was really interesting to see the data from tokyo how the body temp really went high high up because obviously tokyo was uh, a hot human race and a long one and we did some heat training beforehand for the adaptation and uh, unfortunately i didn't have it then but for sure, when I do some heat training, if I do some heat training this year, then uh, it'll be even more interesting to see how the adaptation works and how, how the body adjusts to yeah, the heat. Tom's, I think this core body temperature sensor is really interesting. You know, prior to this, um, being here at Fast Talk Labs, I was at Perlazumi. And so this heat transfer topic is, is sort of near and dear to my heart. And Something that's really interesting about this device is it's, it's actually a thermal energy transfer sensor or 
that's what they bill it as. And the difference is that one side is measuring the temperature against your skin, but the other side is measuring the environmental temperature. And what they're trying to do is look at the difference between the two so they can kind of understand, well, how much heat can the environment take, you know, from the body and therefore how does that affect your core temperature? You know, and this is something that I relied pretty heavily on as I was training for Cocapelline a day because our window for completing that ride, unfortunately, meant we were going to have to do part of it in the heat. And unfortunately, that undone our uh, our effort. We, we didn't, unfortunately, make Cocapelline a day, mm. um, you know, but, but paying attention to core temperature leading into that uh, was really interesting. Now, Tom's what I'm interested in, I used it really just as a, a sensor to monitor where my core temperature was at. I personally haven't gotten into any of the the testing protocols that they've done or the the heat training protocols that they've done. I, I almost feel like they they advocate for a a step test, just like a lactate test in a lab, a step test where you're looking at rises in core temperature. Have you done any deeper uh, research on that? Yeah, you're right. They do have uh, a protocol, and I looked at it, and I was like, "This is crazy." So I never did it, <laughs> but also because I got the device kind of after we start had started the already heat training for Tokyo. Mm-hmm. But if I do it again, uh, you can guys have can have me on the podcast again, and we can talk about it a bit more. But um, yeah, they do have some sort of like ramp test that you have to find your like high heat temperature, whatever they call it. That is the let's say threshold zone comparatively on your power meter that if you stay at that it is like gets the max out of you for the heat adaptation or something yeah 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 okay so toms i guess i have one final question for you which is just have a little fun here what is the craziest tool that you have tried any any good final stories for us well, actually, the I don't know if it, you would call it the craziest, but the most stupid neurotic tool that I've used that is also maybe the silliest and just shows how sometimes you can dive down that rabbit hole and decide that every tool in the world is useful for whatever reason, was I bought these, I don't know, off of eBay or Amazon or whatever, like something really random electronic skinfold measurement calipers because I decided that it's going to be a great way to track my body fat. But for one, the only place you can really measure is like your belly and your legs. But for two, it's just like so unnecessary and so stupid that um, I used it twice and never again. I have never heard of electronic skinfold measurements. No? That is stupid. (laughs) <laughs> I have some calibers somewhere, but they're good old-fashioned, just a little scale on the thing that you have to read yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, wherever you bought them, Tom's, put them right back up on, if it was eBay, put them right back up there and try to say, yeah. hey, these were used by a professional athlete. Maybe you'll actually get a little <laughs> bit more from the, for them. Good plan. <laughs> if anybody needs a pair of skinfold calipers, contact Tom's. Uh, <laughs> we can put that on our Instagram account if you'd like. Tom's garage. Yeah, so. perfect. I need I need to get rid of some other things also that are collecting dust. So feel free to reach out. Sounds good. All right, let's let's close out with some really short take home messages. Trevor, I'm looking at you. You go first to wrap up this episode. Wow. If if I have a serious one, it's obviously there are more and more tools out there. 
it's actually great to talk with somebody who's going and trying all these to, to see what they're about and, and what is valuable and, and what is not. But Tom's, I, I feel like I should stop here because I'm probably stealing the, the take home that you said earlier on, which is, is probably the best one about whether you're going to use it or not. So I'll throw it to you and, and see if you have a better take home than I do. Yeah. I mean, as I said in the very, very beginning, the tool that you will actually use is probably the one that you should get. But at the same time, no tool is going to help you get out of the door. And as long as you get out the door and go actually training, that's uh, that's the best tool in the toolbox. Rob, why don't you uh, close us out? Because I don't have anything to say about gadgets. Yeah, well, I think the last <laughs> thing is... Uh, you know, it can be fun and interesting to play with these toys, to collect all of this information. But the real important thing is is knowing what to listen to, knowing what to pay attention to, and, and what to action on and when. And, and that's really the, the most important part. Cool. Very good. Thank you, Toms. Oh, thank you, guys. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback, so join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Tom Squinch, Rob Pickles, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.